Father, we thank you that this day, embracing your plan of sanctification for us, this song can indeed be true of each one of us in Christ today. If ever we love thee, my Jesus, it is now. We pray through the instruction of your word, your spirit's use of this means today, that our love for what you have done for us and our love for you indeed, yourself, our relationship with you might deepen, that we would appreciate anew and in fresh contours, in more glory and powerful repercussions, the great gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord. I pray that you would soften our hearts that sometimes grow hard through distractions, besetting sins, selfishness, weariness of flesh and of soul. I pray that you would encourage us to strive ever more so as the day approaches, leaning into the wind as it were, setting behind everything we once called gain and setting before the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I pray that the words forever, immortally, preserved, infallibly ordained from your lips, Lord, to the hearts and to the pen of your servants in Scripture. I pray that these words would be life-giving unto us, resurrecting areas of our life that have been lethargic unto spiritual faithfulness. Keep us, Lord, we pray, in your presence this day as we open your word, so that we might be changed thereby. I pray for those who may fellowship among us, or those whom we will meet this week, who have not had that encounter on a regeneration level with the power of the Spirit's work to awaken their dead heart to newness of life. May we be faithful, ready, and equipped to bring the message of life in Jesus Christ as a result of your and as a result of your plans for this service today. And all these things we pray that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. What a great opportunity we have to open up the Scriptures together. I pray that you would do so with me as we turn to Jonah chapter 4 today, as we consider with reverence and fear God's holy word. Today's message in Jonah brings us to the end of this book, four chapters, and today's selection of verses will be verse 6 through 11. In this series, there will likely be one more message of overview, but today we get to the end of the book as the Lord is disciplining His Son and teaching Him and instructing Him through these circumstances. The title of today's message is Important Relationships, Important Relationships. The aim of this message today is that we may self-examine, according to Scripture, leading to spiritual maturity. You see, God is teaching Jonah to examine his heart, examine himself, and the goal is that he would be mature, more mature as a result of this process. And God uses the circumstances around him, the environment, that, and the, the uh, miracle that he has just performed in the hearts of the Ninevites to accomplish this very thing. The Lord accomplishes this same type of thing for us through His Word. Through His Word, we are taught to self-examine, to look and to see what areas of our life are not in conformity to the Word and to the will of God. And through this means, the washing of the water of the Word thereby, we are to become more spiritually mature. So I pray that we learn a lesson from Jonah as his story is recorded for our benefit today. Would you stand with me out of respect and reverence for the Word of God as we behold these words together 
Again, Jonah 4, 6-11. Here we have the holy word of the Lord. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. <clears throat> but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I... Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of God. You may be seated. For a cross-reference in a very similar account that lends credence, evidence to a pattern in the Scriptures, Turn with me to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19. The account of Jonah's ministry and subsequent response, what happens after his successful ministry in Nineveh, is a reminder to us that great triumphs, great triumphs, battles won, Great miracles witnessed may also be attended by great trials as God is pleased to accomplish things through His servants as well as in His servants simultaneously. Let me explain that a phrase or that sentence there, through His servant as well as in His servant. The Lord's work in the book of Jonah and in Jonah's experience is comprehensive. A prophet might think to himself, my primary goal, my primary job and the duty and what to expect in this situation is that God would use me to affect other people's lives. We often pray prayers like this, don't we? Especially if it's an idea of being included in God's plan that is something of a successful, triumphant or encouraging thought to us that, oh, the privilege that God might use me to bring the gospel to my neighbor or to witness a great revival or to pray earnestly and to see an answer to prayer in this life or another, or to have a good application of the Scripture come to mind that I might be an encouragement for someone else. And the Lord does work this way. He does, in His kindness, use us in ways like this. And it is a privilege to be included in His plan. But often we are less likely to realize that as the Lord uses us to encourage others, he is often also doing a work in us at the same time. Jonah recognized his role as a prophet, but he was less apt to see how his own heart needed work. He needed the Word of God to search and to know Him from the inside out, to see if there be any wicked way in his heart, and then to lead Him in a way 
that would prove him more fa- a more faithful follower, an obedient servant of the Lord his God. Thus, the Lord was accomplishing things in the book of Jonah in this account through his servant as well as in his servant at the same time. Little did Jonah realize his calling to preach to Nineveh would affect his own soul in this way, revealing his heart and instructing him, instructing him in the purposes and character of the God he has presumptuously second-guessed at this moment in our text. Other prophets of Scripture can relate to Jonah's experience, however. In 1 Kings 19, we see the record of Elijah's despair of soul upon his successful contest of divine power which shamed and killed every last prophet of Baal in the land. So we turn to 1 Kings 19 and we pick up on this story. You recall Mount Carmel where Elijah challenged the false prophets to a duel. He said, prepare your sacrifice, I'll prepare mine. The God who truly has the power to answer will bring fire upon the sacrifice. Then Then we will see in this nation who is Lord. You know how it turned out. The one true God, Yahweh Himself, breathes fire from heaven, consumes the sacrifice. That is, at this point, waterlogged, licks up the water in the ditch, and the people are dumbstruck with both terror and awe as the Lord answers from the heavens with fire. They rise up with the prophet, and they slay the 450 false prophets of Baal, eradicating the land in one fell swoop of idolatry. And you would think, Wow, what a moment of triumph. The hero of the land, the one to whom we would erect a statue, the one whose name would be on everyone's lips in that moment must be Elijah. Was Elijah celebrating this moment? Well, in 1 Kings 19, here's where we find him. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and now how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. Elijah was afraid of one wicked queen, even after he had just witnessed the destruction of 450 false prophets. So what did he do? Verse 3 continues. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat down under a broom tree. Does this sound familiar? Sat down, in Jonah's case, in a booth, under a plant eventually. He asked that he might die, saying, Is it enough now, O Lord? Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. Notice in verse 5, And behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. Elijah needed to be reminded that he was not sufficient for his own sustenance, but he himself was dependent on the same God that answered by fire to give him encouragement and hope and joy, faithfulness for one more day of ministry. Though he had been witness to this triumphant moment of God's overwhelming power, he needed a personal, a personal touch of the Lord in this angelic ministry at this time where he proved himself weak of soul. The angel of the Lord came down a second time, verse 7, and touched him and said, Rise and eat, 
for the journey is too great for you. God's servants need to be reminded that the calling is too great for them. The journey is too great for them. It's something they cannot psychologically bear, the weight of the glory of the Lord or the weight of the responsibility on our shoulders, sharing the gospel with others, living in light of the truth. It is too great for us. This is why the promise of the Holy Spirit by Christ Himself, I will send another, a comforter, a paraclete, an advocate, one to represent you, one to lead and guide you into all truth, one that will minister to you through my preached word, through the meditation on the same, that you might be equipped each day by these means to continue for the journey, Christian, is too great for you. Verse 8, and he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Doesn't it remind you of the Lord's question of Jonah? Do you do right to be angry? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by in a great strong wind, tore the mountain, and broke it in pieces, the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. Secondly, he came, or secondly, Displayed before Elijah was an earthquake, thirdly a fire. But you recall, it was the still small voice that was needful for Elijah at this time. And in this moment, God was working through his servant and he was working in his servant. Much like Jonah, Elijah, where the still small voice of the Lord was speaking to the soul on an individual level for Elijah himself, this great prophet who was responsible in part for obedience to the Lord and witnessing this great occasion, he needed to be ministered to. 1 Kings 19 thus records Elijah's despair of soul upon his successful uh, ministry and demonstration of divine power which was worked through him, which shamed and killed the prophets of Baal. The occasion revealed, however, the weakness of the prophet and the compassion of the Lord. The Lord is jealous for His glory. No man will, will, be show, or will compete with it, not even His prophets. Let us not venerate men in the place of God, but recognize if it is not for the enabling of the Spirit's work, no one has the capacity, the strength to walk this path. So we see the weakness of the prophet and the compassion of the Lord. Yahweh Himself, the personal and sovereign Lord who rescues nations, at the same time, he reveals himself one-on-one to his children. In this case, to his child Elijah and Jonah as well in our text. Elijah is encouraged by the ministry of angels and the instruction of God himself, just as Jonah is patiently corrected by the Lord who administers discipline to his legitimate son, recalling Hebrews 12. So it brings us to ask this question, leads us to ask this question. What are the invaluable lessons we should take to heart from these kinds of passages. For one, we've learned that salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not of us. But secondly, in our text today, may I submit to you that we are further instructed as to critical relationships in the plan of God and the life of a believer. And getting back to Jonah chapter 4, 6 through 11, there are perhaps three relationships 
that are examined and emphasized and considered in the book of Jonah. So let us, in summary and, uh, of our text today and partially to touch upon other texts in the book of Jonah, consider them today. First relationship, man and his environment. The relationship of man to his environment, that is, the things around him and his circumstances, is considered in some depth in Jonah. Secondly, the relationship between God and his creation. We see much uh, to this effect in the book of Jonah and his account. And thirdly, God and his creatures. Not just uh, the animals that he has created, not just the environment that he has created, but even more specifically, human beings. And even more specifically than that, Jonah himself. So let us consider these relationships in the book of Jonah. First of all, man and his environment. In Jonah 4, verse 6, back in our text today, we see the following. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head and save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad, exceedingly glad because of the plant. So you see that under these conditions, Jonah had pegged some of his joy. Jonah had invested comfort and joy in the shade, a small thing, but a relationship to his environment. Jonah was happy to have the shade. Jonah was so happy, in fact, that he had lost perspective. That is to say, Jonah had invested his joy, his comfort, or his, uh, the things that were meaningful and valuable to him in a weird place. In fact, when the plant was removed, so was his joy. When the dawn came the next day, verse 7, God appointed a worm, it attacked the plant. And what is Jonah's response? He asked that he might die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. End of verse 8. The Lord said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Do you have too much invested in your environment, in the circumstances that surround you? Is it wise that your joy rises and falls, your will to live rises and falls with a plant that gives you shade from the sun? These circumstances, may I submit to you, are designed by the Lord Himself to reveal Jonah's inconsistent and fickle relationship to the providential hand of God. Anyone who realized and valued the providence of God in moments like these would answer the question differently. Do you do well to be angry? Jonah, in his pity, says, uh, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. But anyone whose perspective was correct, who was listening and responding to the disciplining hand of the Lord, when the Lord took away this creature comfort for a moment, they would answer correctly and say, No, I repent, Lord. I do not do well to be angry. Though Jonah remained obstinate for a time, we can assume as a child of God that this discipline eventually ran its course and he probably answered that way, Lord, I do not do well to be angry. I am sorry. How short our memories of worship can be. Turn back with me just a page or so and notice the environment that Jonah finds himself in 117. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Where would you rather be? Under, in a booth, under a plant that had just withered, even if it is a scorching hot sun, or in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights? Which place would you rather be? 
Well, that's an easy one to answer. I'll take my chances in the desert, thank you. After all, just a walking distance from the city. All the provisions that I need in this whole city whose hearts has been transformed is there. I have all the resources, potential relationships. I'm going to uh, take my chances there. Notice in chapter 2, verse 1, however, in Jonah, for some reason, his attitude was reversed. Jonah prayed in, uh, to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. What does he say? I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. The Lord answered Jonah's call for distress by giving him a fish to live in. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Do you see the perspective, why it's different? Jonah had left the environment of the water judgment of God, where his lungs were bleeding for air, as it were, crying out, screaming for the life-giving oxygen, and the waves were crashing over his head, and he was sinking deep into his watery grave. And yet the Lord answered his prayer. He delivered him from this water judgment in the belly of a fish. So Jonah recognized this environment was an instrument of salvation. That is to say, Jonah would rather be in the belly of the fish than drowning in the seas around him. He said, I am driven driven away from your sight in verse 4, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my head. Goes on to say, basically, he was dead to rights. But in this belly of the fish, he found salvation. Where does Jonah find himself? The belly of the fish is the occasion for ecstatic praise. What makes all the difference? Why under this booth with this plant, whether it was alive or not, why was that not an occasion in Jonah's mind for ecstatic praise? Well, in the case of the fish, Jonah was well aware that he deserved the water judgment. The same type of judgment that drowned all of Noah's neighbors, the whole world save eight people. Because he had tried to run from the presence of the Lord. He had broken his law. He had run away. He had denied the Lord who made him. Denied the Lord who called him and set his face to Tarshish. He was well aware that he deserved worse. So that when he was in the belly of the fish, he thanked the Lord and gave a song of praise. Verse 9, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. Jonah, in this environment, was thankful that he was in a fish, preserved. How might we apply this to our situation today? Have you ever found yourself in a situation, under certain circumstances, where your attitude was poor, where you were not thankful, you were wished for something better? Lord, if you could just give me a little shade, a little respite from the stress Lord, just when I was hoping you'd answer prayer to make things a little calmer in my life, you just added another burden. Just take me right now. If this is the the future for me, I don't understand uh, your purposes in it. You might as well take me now. I cannot bear these burdens in these circumstances. It is easy to embrace this kind of defeatist, almost suicidal, soul-suicidal, self-pity party. How do we fight this? We fight this through the perspective that the gospel brings. If we remember that we have been rescued from deserving water judgment, it doesn't matter if life's circumstances are the equivalent of the belly of a fish. If we are alive, 
If there's breath in our lungs, we can cry out to the Lord in thankfulness, knowing that you and I, as wicked sinners, deserve hell. You've probably heard that little cliche, how are you doing? Uh, Better than I deserve. Those words are always true. Always true. How How are you today? Better than I deserve. Always true. There is a profound reality behind that confession. And no matter where you are, under withered plant in the desert, in the belly of the fish, rescued against all odds from a drowning death, it is better than you deserve. I mentioned recently in a message that we need to be personally and regularly in contact with the gospel, remembering the wickedness of our sin before we met Christ and the power of His blood to wash it away. Why? Because it changes our heart from one of pity to thanksgiving. It changes our confession from one of complaining to worship. It puts us back in the heart of Jonah chapter 2, and we are more apt to confess as sin, the attitude of Jonah chapter 4. God has been kind to us. Have you ever heard a testimony of someone? I heard one this week, where it really puts you back in that moment of raw salvation. I listened to a man who said, the Lord in His kindness regenerated me when I was in prison. This man spent eight years in prison as I was listening to his story. Suddenly this place of despair turned into a great blessing in his mind. He said, by His grace alone, I had thousands of hours to study. (coughs) If you looked at his arrest record and all that stuff, you could make make a biblical case that he was imprisoned unjustly. Yet this man knew upon his salvation that this jail cell, even this unjust sentence, was better than he deserved. And suddenly he saw these thousands and thousands of hours, countless hours, incarcerated as an opportunity for one-on-one connection with his Lord and Savior to study, to memorize, to search out, and to seek the Lord. The Lord used this occasion in Jonah's life to do exactly that. Even though his servant was obstinate at this moment, he was nevertheless speaking to him, calling to him, working on his soul. The Lord used the occasion in Elijah's life for the same. Even though his servant was weary even unto death, he drew him away, he spoke to him, he ministered to him, he revealed himself to him. The relationship between man and his environment, the difference, the perspective, the gospel brings the perspective that makes all the difference in the world. Jonah's ideals, his ideal set of circumstances in his mind, needed to recognize the value of affliction. These circumstances were designed, they were by design to reveal Jonah's misguided values or ideals. Jonah's operating assumption was that there is great value in comfort. It's almost an ironic phrase, but it says again in Jonah 4, 6, the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. The Lord provided salvation from his discomfort. For this, Jonah was exceedingly glad. Why? Because Jonah valued comfort. Jonah valued comfort so much that this plant made him exceedingly glad. Meanwhile, he was angry, spitting nails, because God had just saved 120,000 souls, and that did not make Jonah exceedingly glad. 
Jonah's relationship with his environment revealed that his ideals, his values were askew. For Jonah, at this moment, he was confessing there was great value and comfort and great loss and affliction. Just a little bit of suffering, the sun beating down on him, suddenly was enough for him to to wish that he were dead. However, the scripture teaches us something different. There is great value in affliction. As we learn the value of affliction, we begin to make some of the greatest advances in our spiritual maturity. You know this from the New Testament scriptures. This slight momentary affliction is earning for us, uh, yielding for us, paraphrasing an eternal weight of glory beyond compare. Uh, Paul understood this. There was no way he could keep going without realizing the value of affliction. After all, his ministry was fraught with so many hardships. But he says, "I, I hold this treasure in jars of clay that the surpassing glory might be more featured. In other words, as he in his flesh and his daily circumstances and his environment testified to the weakness of man, the fact that he continued on conversely testified to the glory of God. There is only one possible cause for a man to stay motivated, passionate, and diligent to bring the gospel to the known world in spite of stonings, beatings, shipwreck, and coming into problems with the religious leaders, trouble with the law, imprisoned and impugned and mocked and marginalized by society. There's, there's only one possible cause under all that. The cause is the greater power of the Spirit of God to minister to His Son, to give Him grace to continue by teaching Him to realize the value of affliction. Oh, we love our comforts. So much of life and so much is sold and traded. I wonder if you could put a dollar number on it, what it would be. The percentage of the GDP of America that was in some way connected to selling us comforts, creature comforts. It's probably in the multi-billions, if not more. Yet, these are not the greatest values. Comfort is not the greatest or only value. And in fact, in, the, in the, our walk with the Lord, one of the early lessons that we learn, if we are to grow and to mature, is indeed the value of affliction. Thirdly, under man and his environment, God used this opportunity for revelation. What does God intend to teach through our environment, to teach us through our circumstances, our day-to-day life, the things that we encounter as we seek to live out our Christianity? In this case, in the case of Jonah, God used the general revelation to underscore spiritual revelation. What do I mean? <clears throat> well, general revelation is a category of God showing Himself, of God speaking and showing forth and manifesting His glory that takes place in nature. We see the general revelation of God revealing His glory as we look at the night sky, as we appreciate a sunset, as the fields bloom in harvest time and as new life springs forth from the death of winter at springtime. All these are the general revelation. It is creation speaking to the glory of God. Well, the Lord employed general revelation at this time, a plant, a wind, and a worm, and to actually emphasize a special revelation. What is special revelation? That is the revelation that comes through relationship with the Lord. It entails the things of redemption and salvation. 
It is the connection to the God be on, be, uh, behind nature, the God responsible for nature, that is forged in His grace and in His mercy. And God used this moment and even Jonah's relationship to his environment to emphasize His love, His grace, and His mercy for His Son. There's an interesting Hebrew word I'm told, phrase, to save him from his discomfort. That word discomfort is ra'ah, and it's a Hebrew word that can also be translated evil, disaster, or displeased. It's an an intense word that has a little broader meaning than we may be used to in English. The word appears several other places in the book. In chapter 1, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, the Lord says, that great city, and call out against it, for their ra'ah, their evil, has come up before me. It's a word that indicates the seriousness of the situation, the weight, the heaviness of the situation. The word is used three other times in chapter 3. Let everyone turn from his evil way, the king says, his ra'ah way, and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The king recognizes the heaviness of the situation, the seriousness of the situation. Verse 10, the Lord saw what they did, how they turned away from their ra'ah way, their evil way. The Lord relented of the disaster, that also is ra'ah, relented of this uh, seriousness of the situation that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. And then we get over and turn the next page and there's some irony here. The Lord sends a plant to save him from his ra'ah, from the seriousness of his situation. It sort of brings a smile to your face. In other words, God is teaching Jonah and teaching us the irony here. Jonah had elevated his uncomfortable situation, not having enough shade, to the level of a spiritual crisis. He was upset. In fact, He was so upset that he didn't have shade. It was as important to him in that moment as the judgment deserving the evil of this pagan city. And so you see why Jonah's heart needed work in this moment. The Lord will use circumstances to remind us of what's most important. He will take sometimes crises that try us and stretch us to our very limits in order to teach us that in our finitude, in our limited state, as mere humans, we must rely on a power that's outside of ourselves for grace to endure and for perspective. Otherwise, the little things become such a big deal so easily for us. And we count the straws on the back of the camel and we think, one more straw, not enough shade, and I'll find them. That's enough to give up. But it's not a ra'ah situation. The ra'ah situation is our sin and the judgment it deserves. And when we remember that we have received salvation, then we are reminded the privilege of sharing it with others and it brings perspective back to our souls. So the relationship between man and his environment was an instruction tool that God used to awaken Jonah's soul to the reality of the situation. Secondly, let's consider the relationship between God and creation. God and creation. We'll cover this one more briefly because we've explored it some already. But notice how a worm or a plant, a worm and a wind are all employed. God's relationship to creation is featured in this moment. 
God appointed a plant, verse 6, and made it come up over Jonah, reminding us that the Lord is sovereign over the leaves of the field, over the plants that uh, spring up through the ages and everywhere on this globe. It says again in verse 7, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. Again, God gives special instructions to this tiny creature, like an army worm we might think of um, in our area, which destroys the leaves on a tree. God appointed this worm, gave it a job, said, eat that plant hanging over Jonah, remove his shade. And then God, in verse 8, appointed a third element of nature, a scorching east wind. So as the sun rose, it would beat down upon Jonah. These are God's appointments in this passage, but they are not the first. We also see him appointing a storm and a fish, as we've remarked in the course of our series. Just a reminder, Jonah 1 verse 4, But the Lord hurled, instead of a point, the word here is translated hurled, or the word is translated hurled, a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the, the ship threatened to break up. The word appointment again appears in the ESV translation for verse 17 of the same chapter. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then verse 10, it's recorded this way, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So notice those three words, hurled, appointed, and spoke. The first recalls God's judgments. God hurls sometimes great winds, storms at seas, as evidence of His disciplining and indeed His condemning power to judge, proving there is no escape from His presence. Jonah's foolish endeavor was to run away from the presence of the Lord by setting sail for Tarshish. God proves His power to judge by hurling up a great wind, a roadblock in His path, on the stormy seas that halt his journey and causes him to do a U-turn. Secondly, we consider the Lord's power of predestination, his plan for all things for all time, right down to the fish. God appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, again recalling the language of our passage where the Lord appoints a worm and a plant and a wind. And then we see the Lord speaking to the fish. It vomited Jonah up on the dry land. And this is the language that is employed in creation itself, reminding us of God's spoken word and its power to bring what is not into being, to speak into being out of nothing, creation itself. So God's relationship with creation featured throughout the book of Jonah reminds us of his judgments, of his predestination and of his creative power. We also see Jonah confessing this initially, initially God's relationship to creation, again in his worship song in chapter 2. Notice verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. Notice this possessive pronoun. All your waves and your billows passed over me. The countless trillions and trillions who knows how many waves that even now arise from the oceans of this earth that cover some two-thirds of our globe? Do you realize that every single one is the Lord's? It was His wave, trillions and trillions of time, 
times that rises and falls on the surface of the great deep. It is his billows that pass over what is buried in watery grave underneath, reminding of us of his power to judge when he engulfed the, this world in the great flood of Noah. Every wave is his that passes over the skeletons, as it were, uh, the decaying matter of the world that once was when he destroyed it in the great flood. These are his waves. These are his billows. Sea and land are his. Jonah confesses both. He goes on to say in verse 6 of his worship song, At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land, whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up, or brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. In these confessions, Jonah is stating the truth. Sea and land, that is the entire world, is the Lord's domain. Every wave to the base of every mountain is under his control and in his ownership. This is Jonah's prayerful confession in the belly of the fish. All the universe, all the earth is the Lord's. Jonah recognizes and extols God's relationship with creation and Jonah's experience also even when his heart is hard or needs to be softened when he is in sin. It also testifies to the same, God's relationship to storm, to fish, to sea, to land, and then in our text today, to plant, to worm, to wind. Plants, animals, and weather all testify to the stewardship, to the authority, to the sovereignty, to the control, and to the superintendence of our almighty God. The Lord appointed these things, plant, worm, and wind, to teach His Son a lesson. And of this lesson, of this detail, the commentator John Gill notes, quote, This shows that God is the creator of the least as well as the largest of creatures, of worms as well as whales. So that's an interesting little note in the text. The Lord is sovereign over a whale that is a big fish. He is sovereign over a tiny worm. From the least of the creatures to the greatest, in Jonah's account here, we see that he is Lord. I was watching a special on blue whales in the recent past. And what scientists, as far as we know, from that, this documentary anyway, they said that blue whales are the largest creature that has ever existed on this globe, as far as we know. It's interesting to me that God has preserved those creatures we think of the largest creatures imaginable, usually our mind rushes to dinosaurs. And we think, wow, what would it have been like to be alive when those things roamed the earth? Well, we are alive when the largest of all creatures that we know of still roams the seas. And every time one of those gigantic creatures rises up out of the water to do what they do, breach and what have you, and create waves that would be big enough to sink like 15 of my sailboats all at once, we are reminded that that is God's creature. And every time we complain about an invasive species, a little bug that does such great damage, we ought to be reminded in our land that a little army worm is God's creature. God and His creation are connected in this way so that by His hurling, by His appointing, by His spoken word, they obey His commands. Shouldn't we do the same? What a testimony of shame against Jonah. Hopefully, you know, one that would bring him to correction. But an embarrassing indictment indeed. 
that the worm would obey the second it is spoken to by the Lord, that the fish immediately swallows Jonah upon the instructions of its maker. Yet when God tells you or I, a conscious human being who knows of his goodness and greatness, who knows that he is steadfast and long-suffering in his love, who is slow to anger and merciful, that we would hesitate in obeying him. Let us look at the relationship between God and his creation and be convicted. The third relationship examined in the book of Jonah that we'll cover this morning is God and his creatures. A little more specifically, Jonah 4, 10 and 11, the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Verse 11, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? It's interesting, the last word in this book is cattle, cows, emphasizing again the Lord's relationship to His creatures. This recalls chapter 3, verse 8, but let man and beast, again, this is the commandment, the edict of the king of Nineveh, he says, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mighty, mightily to God. Let everyone run from his evil way and from violence that is in his hands. In this act of contrition, in this act of humbling themselves before the lordship of Yahweh, the people of Nineveh, the king of Nineveh, confessed that God himself was sovereign over their cattle, over their livestock. The Lord answered, he heard the words of repentance and petition, and he intervened and he saved both. He saved them and their livestock. He saved the people of Nineveh and their cattle. Why? Because the Lord demonstrates his love, his concern for all that he has created, from people right down to creatures that roam the earth, wild beasts and the like, or their livestock. The uh, Ninevites, in so doing, recognized his dominion over their animals. While Jonah seemed to be oblivious to his dominion over these things, indeed in some ways himself. As we move to the second point under God and his creatures, God reminds Jonah of his relationship to the lost in verse 11. He says, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? You're asking me to change my intended relationship with those who I seek and save? The ministry of Jesus Christ in the gospel was to seek and to save that which was lost. And now Jonah in his selfish self-pity is asking God to do otherwise. Focus your attention on me. Give me a plant. That's the most important thing right now is that I would have shade. That's his heart. Meanwhile, the Lord says, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? You're asking me to save a plant and to destroy 120,000 people? What is the Lord's relationship to the would-be saved, but as of yet are under His condemnation, are lost in their transgressions and sins? Well, the situation in which they found themselves in need of salvation is described by the Lord. He says, they did not know their right hand from their left. And this describes, this is a, a phrase that describes their moral and spiritual bankruptcy. They had no idea what they were doing 
and they had lost sight of right and wrong. The clearest, most common sense types of values they had thrown out the window, having become hardened in their rebellion and sin. They no longer knew their right hand from their left. Complete biblical illiteracy, moral and spiritual bankruptcy. This was cause for Jonah to despise Nineveh. I hate those people. They are so dumb and wicked. They don't know their right hand from their left. It's an easy attitude to adopt, is it not? You think about the news that floods the, uh, the outlets uh, these days where our culture is spiraling downward into more and more depravity. No one can speak with confidence what is a woman, what is a man anymore. No one can say, this is consent, this is not consent anymore. People don't understand, is this an abusive relationship? Is this something that we should have liberty to pursue? Right now, the sexual scandals, impropriety, fornication, and abuse are flooding the airwaves. And people are all irate when just five minutes ago they might have told us in the college classes and in their pagan books to let the restraints go and the strictures of the old morality are nothing but a vice. They're there to bind you and to suck out of the fun and purpose out of life. The sexual revolution of the 60s promised freedom with free love. And now we are reaping the bitter fruit the fruit including confusion, not knowing our right hand from our left, not knowing which bathroom we should go in, not knowing what relationships should be entertained. And men who were once powerful and influential, in some cases I'm sure women as well, are now reduced to embarrassing clickbait front page stories. Why? Because they have lost the moral framework, right and wrong, common sense, they don't know their right hand from their left. And our laws are self-contradictory. And our laws restrict our freedoms while promising us liberty. And they steal from us on the one hand and they grant it back to us in the other, incentivizing the destruction of the family, the truly stable units of society that would keep us grounded. And in our law structures, in our notions of right and wrong, in the popular ethics of our day, we're double-minded, we're lost, we don't know our right hand from our left. And so we might hate the world that we live in. We might despise these types of people. We might find ourselves asking God to just burn it all. Like we mentioned last week, retreat to the east side, build a booth, and wait for the city of America to burn. But what is the relationship that God instructs Jonah in to Nineveh? He says, should I not pity Nineveh? There should be in our hearts as we examine the landscape of our land a sense of pity, concern, love, prayer, earnest desire that they would know in fact their right hand from their left. That the Lord with the awakened eyes blinded by sin to see I am indeed embarrassed and shamed because I have awoken to what I have indulged in this life and I find that I am wicked and grotesque and in need of salvation. There was a real need in Nineveh for the truth, and Jonah was God's servant to bring it. And instead of relishing the opportunity, his heart was not conditioned to appreciate the great privilege that this was. 
Instead, he was hoping that they would burn. Don't waste our pity on plants. Don't waste your pity, your concern, perhaps better said, on your creature comforts. Don't waste it on a little more shade, a little bit more joy, a little bit more of what you wish for on a day-to-day circumstantial basis. Don't waste your affections on those things. Save some for the lost. Their favorite lines of a song that I always remember, it envisions a future um, at the lead singer's funeral. And the words are, as you carry me down the aisle that final day, when your tears and cold hands are shaking from the weight, when they lower me down beneath the clouds of gray, And then it continues to kind of portray this sad and mournful scene. And the phrase that sticks in my head is, save sorrow for the souls in doubt. Save sorrow for the souls in doubt. The funeral of a believing loved one is a hopeful transition to glory. Yes, we are sorry to see this change in our circumstance. But this man's message upon his funeral one day was, save sorrow, save pity for the souls in doubt. Don't waste all your affections and pity and concern on yourself, what you would prefer. Remember, there are myriads of the lost careening to hell if they do not awaken to the righteousness of God in the only way of salvation. Finally, this morning we see God's relationship to Jonah. Even in these stiff rebukes and these sharp corrections, God is proving himself merciful to Jonah, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love as Jonah himself confessed in verse 2. And we see ourselves in this, do we not? God's relationship to us, we can relate to Jonah. How often are we more concerned with salvation from our own discomfort than the salvation of lost souls? How often are we more concerned to be saved or to be delivered from our own discomfort than for the salvation of lost souls? If we can relate to that, then we can relate to Jonah. How often are we guilty of esteeming the gift above the giver? The things that God provides for us in His grace, His providence, and His mercy. And oh, don't give so much often in our thinking and our affections a second thought to the one from whom all blessings flow. Jonah is upset at the destruction of a plant that has no moral agency for selfish reasons. While at the same time entertaining resentment for God's relenting of the destruction of Nineveh. Jonah is saying, don't save Nineveh, save this weed. Don't save Nineveh, give me shade. This is the position that Jonah's pitiful situation found him in at this time. He's upset at the destruction of a plant that has no moral agency for selfish reasons, the at the same time entertaining resentment for God's relenting of the destruction of Nineveh. Let us remember in our slight and momentary afflictions that they are for a purpose, that God instructs us, disciplines us, changes our perspectives, corrects our values, and reveals Himself to us through these things. Would we deny the Lamb of God the rewards of His sufferings on account of our desire for our own creature comforts? In closing this morning, Romans 11 reminds us that the ways of God are beyond our second guessing. If God works in ways or 
uh, and acts in, in, in a particular way that we did not expect or if he waits and we wish that he would intervene sooner, regardless of what the situation might be, let us remember with Paul, Romans eleven thirty three, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Pausing there. Not Elijah, not Jonah, not us, not Job. No one could be his counselor. What a presumptuous, ridiculous thing. No one is omnipotent save God alone, all-powerful. No one knows all things, omniscience, save God alone. No one knows the end from the beginning, save God alone. No one has judgments, predestination, creation in the palm of their hand, at the power of their speech, save God alone. Who has known the mind of the Lord or has become His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? And in light of this perspective-changing truth, Paul confesses in Romans eleven thirty six, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let us close in prayer. O oh Lord, I pray that through the corrective measures of your scripture, the things that we resent, the things that we're tempted to complain about, self-focus, self-pity, sins that easily beset, discouragement, depression, and despair would be turned into praise and worship. As we recognize through the corrective means of your word that from you, through you, and to you are all things. Therefore, to you be glory forever and ever. Amen. We repent this day if we have presumed to be your counselor. Why have you done thus and so? Why haven't you done this thing that I would prefer? Lord, we are sorry. Only you and you alone can be trusted to govern this universe. Please do not take our advice. Only encourage us, soften our hearts to be conformed to your will and your way. Lord, we could not repay you even if we wanted to. What we have received from you is a gift of grace alone. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would earn for yourself more rewards of your suffering through our trusting in you and through our obedience. If there are any who are weary and discouraged this day, lift them up through the proclamation of your word. Strengthen us by the ministry of your Holy Spirit for another day of walking in light of our salvation. Unto the praise of your great name, Jesus Christ we pray in your name. Amen.